Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. One of the aspects that we see, hear, and read about diversity, equity, and inclusion has to do with the perceived moral imperative about advancing DEI initiatives and DEI thought process uh, in all aspects of our lives, whether it be political, business, education, or otherwise. And this is a particularly challenging framework when you consider it simply because the approach makes DEI almost unidimensional. When in fact, addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion has multiple perspectives and multiple benefits to institutions, businesses, and obviously to uh, individuals on a personal level. Lately, there have been a lot of discussions that DEI is a distraction and has been considered uh, something that is essentially to blame for the failure of business entities and other institutions. When in fact, there is a business case, there's an economic case, there's a financial case, as well as a moral imperative, as well as uh, an imperative to be relevant to individuals that are seeking employment or learning opportunities or simply opportunities to better whatever group that they're in. And so on this episode, we're going to spend some time, meaningful time, not just exploring uh, the equity piece in terms of health inequities noticed in the hospice, but also taking meaningful time to uh, reinforce that there is a business case and one that we all need to think about with respect to healthcare, because part of our role, particularly in larger organizations, is to improve quality and reduce cost and understanding that DEI initiatives and appropriately applying DEI within the framework of your organization can lead to better outcomes. And if that's the approach that highlighting DEI, uh, if, if highlighting that is the approach that's necessary to get DEI traction within a particular organization, well then so be it. Welcome to another episode of Crossing the Chasm. This is Dr. Greg Johnson, your host. I'm joined by my executive producer extraordinaire, Jay Lee, and I am also joined by an exceptional guest this week, Jose Farua, who is the CEO of JOL Healthcare. Did I get that right? That's right. Journey of Life. Yes. Journey of Life, which is a hospice and palliative care organization and based in Austin, Texas, correct? 
That's right. Uh, hospice and home health, uh, serving Austin surrounding areas, and now most recently Houston as well. Oh, all right. We always find a way to make sure that Houston somehow gets mentioned in this podcast. I'm probably going to get called out for that, but that's okay. Well, welcome, Jose. Super happy to have you here and joining us. Uh, as I typically do, I want our our audience to hear a little bit about our guests. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in healthcare? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, very interesting topic. Uh, my name is Jose Ferru. I'm the CEO of uh, Journey of Life Healthcare. Um, I've been in healthcare on and uh, in and out for about 10 years. Um, I've been the CEO of this company for a little bit, a year and a half. Prior to this, I spent five years as chief of staff to the CEO of Doctors Hospital at Renaissance. Um, and I was chief of staff to the CEO and I was chief operating officer for the clinics that they own, subspecialty, over 70 subspecialty clinics. Uh, it's in South Texas. I commuted every week, five hours each way, but uh, it was quite an experience, a great mission, and they had a lot of service lines, over 20. Uh, before Corona, we're doing about uh, 2,000 visits and operation procedures in a day. Uh, so quite a dynamic uh, organization, 6,000 employees, about 650 million uh, in revenue, 430-bed hospital. And uh, it was a great experience. And I had to come back to Austin. I have two kids and back to my wife, uh, poor thing. She's a teacher at uh, professor at St. Edward's University here in Austin. Um, before that, I've been in tech, uh, Dell and Hewlett Packard. And prior to that, I spent four years as director of financial planning and analysis at, at Lone Star Circle of Care, a local safety net uh, network of clinics here in the Austin surrounding area. So, um, and ultimately decided to stay in healthcare. That's where the calling and the mission is, and uh, happy to be here. Well, that's great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the calling and mission? Yeah, what, what got you back into healthcare since you've had such a wide and varied career? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting because uh, I finished grad school MBA and I went to Dell and then I went to Lone Star and then I went back to tech to Hewlett Packard. And while I was there, um, it's interesting because I've been fortunate enough to cross two industries that are have been high in demand, tech and healthcare. And uh, even now, more than before, things are becoming more technological. So my background, uh, I felt that it was good to pivot back into healthcare from when I was at Hewlett Packard and uh, being fortunate enough to use a lot of that healthcare skill set in the healthcare industry. And as you all know, it's becoming more and more relevant. So um, that, that's really, it wasn't really by design. In a way, it just kind of happened, uh, but definitely grateful for being able to, to serve those industries. Fantastic. So obviously, you know, we spend some time discussing diversity, equity, inclusion in healthcare, and uh, would love to hear why this particular topic is important to you and, and how it applies in your day-to-day -day work. Yes, absolutely. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is near and dear to me because uh, the, the workforce has to be more diverse. Uh, these days, uh, it's very difficult to keep staffing and reduce attrition and make business cases to justify DEI initiatives. I've always been a numbers and operations guy, and uh, I like to take DEI as an example 
of something that some people would consider this abstract concept and try to marry that to business initiatives. I think there's a business case to be made that through DEI initiatives in your organization, uh, you could actually save money. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to put two and two together. Uh, to put a quick example on that, sometimes you may have to close a few beds on a hospital floor because you're not fully staffed. Well, guess what? DEI initiatives can help you reduce attrition. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, it can make a difference to your organization, to the community you serve, and, and to the bottom line. You're speaking my language, which is interesting because quite frequently in the DEI space, a lot of people are just like, well, it's a, it's a moral imperative exclusively. And I argue similar to you, which is, no, I think it's not just that. There is a business imperative here that that ultimately uh, leads us to do be able to do more for our patients. So that's a that's a fantastic perspective that you have. So how, you know how do you go about in in a practical sense applying DEI to you know as a biz, business initiative? Uh, you were you know you you were having the opportunity to mention some some of your thoughts with respect to that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of studies that uh, demonstrate that through DEI, you can achieve better patient care. Uh, patients are most likely to show up to their appointments as well as to get perhaps in some cases even diagnosed faster when their demographics that are serving that population is reflected in the workforce. There's plenty of studies out there. It's a matter of us leaders on the organization taking the time to, to prioritize that and easier said than done, of course, but at the end of the day, it should start at the board room and end up in the emergency room. And uh, it's just going to take some time. Um, just the other day, I was reading something two weeks ago, the chief of the United Nations said that it will take 300 years to reach gender equality, uh, referencing uh, female, male, certain issues, but when you apply that to healthcare, over 80% of the nurses are females and the rest males. Guess who's making the, the most money? Well, males are. So talking about kind of the, the gender gap, he, he is right in a way. And, you know, we've been talking about diversity for over 60 years and uh, certainly a lot of progress has been made. But in healthcare, I think that if we prioritize it in the boardroom and we put these directives to our management to do everything possible for the workforce to reflect our uh, communities, I believe it will have a direct impact in the care that we provide and ultimately the bottom line. But uh, it's about prioritizing and, and uh, making it happen. Yeah, I obviously couldn't agree with you more. So much of the literature has been focused on not only board level leadership, but then making sure that that really seeps into every area of the organization. I do want to pause uh, and dig into something that you mentioned, though, which is you're right. There's plenty of literature out there that really supports racial concordance with care and getting a, a healthcare workforce that's reflective of the community. But what would you say to people that argue uh, argue the point of, oh, well, that sounds like we're going back to segregation where, um, you know, black patients are cared for by black caregivers and, you know, uh, Hispanic patients are cared by, for by Hispanic. And what do you, what would you say or, or what are your thoughts with respect to that? You know, I, I think I, I'm going to quote, uh, as you know, go governor of Texas recently issued some guidance to his agencies that we should hire based on um, 
uh, merits, not DEI priorities specifically mentioned in the article I read. Um, I would say that at the end of the day, we're providing human care for humans. Um, I would say to the extent possible, uh, go ahead when you have the opportunity of two talented individuals, how do you decide which one ultimately gets the job? It should be based on merit, of course, but if you have initiatives of DEI in, in your organization and you're trying to build your workforce to reflect it as close as possible to the community you serve, um, that should take priority. And, and of course, it is not to answer your question um, based on segregation initiatives or anything like that, uh, but it does make a difference. And, and we know that the demand for services will always be greater than the capacity. So you need to be able to serve diverse workforce with the, with the workforce you have. There's limited resources. There's all kinds of constraints. Um, but then again, when, when you do have the choice, you should implement it and, and you should make your goals uh, measurable. You should verbalize them and uh, you should review them periodically. Um, this is just not something that you just talk about. Yeah. So uh, does that mean that you have DEI dashboards for your organization for JOL? Well, we actually meet every two weeks. We have a compliance committee and uh, the compliance also focus on DEI initiatives. Um, you know, we're female owned and founded and uh, it's, it's interesting. We're by no means uh, experts in the field of diversity. We, we do talk about it and we have goals around it, but we have ways to go. Uh, our workforce certainly does not reflect the, the community uh, demographics, but we're definitely working towards that. So, so no, not definitely rooms to go. Gotcha. I don't know that too many people do, but I think it's an area where we all have the opportunity to to push because it, to your point, you can't manage what you don't measure. And, uh, you know, your earlier point about making sure that it's that goals are measurable um, and that they're uh, ultimately aligned with organizational goals uh, is part of the way of helping to ensure that it's it's adequately integrated. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, I'm absolutely at the point of uh, giving you uh, your break because as I stated before, I am, my conversational style ends up being totally interview based and Jay gives me a hard time about it all the time because, well, I deserve it. But do you have a particular question that you'd wanna ask? Uh, I've historically called it the loaded question, but probably simplify it and just say, ask Greg. So what do you wanna ask Greg? You know, um, I want to ask you, what, what are your thoughts on uh, labor shortage in, in healthcare and nursing in particular? Um, you know, fulfilling diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives is hard enough, but in healthcare, perhaps you put that layer where the RNs, LVNs, CNAs, you know, in the next 10 years, that, that labor skill set is, is forecasted to even uh, decline further and uh, without further ado, what, what is your take on that? I mean, that that's really difficult to tackle. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it, that's absolutely, <laughs> as much as I didn't want to call it a loaded question, that's a loaded question because there's so much involved in it. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is, as you highlighted, the pandemic clearly underscored, uh, you know, revealed the cracks that we have in healthcare. And one of the biggest cracks that we have is we don't have enough people to be able to deliver the care 
in all the communities. And it, that's I obviously work in the on the inpatient side in hospitals, uh, but whether inpatient or outpatient, we just don't have enough people. And uh, I think everybody's aware the country cre keeps growing. Um, where there are more and more people that require services, uh, it, you know, and uh, you look at large states where we both live in Texas, but you you look at, at you know, the, what, what's happening and where certain states land in terms of, of uh, not only physicians, but nursing, you know, nurses per capita, and you fundamentally recognize as the pandemic revealed, we're woefully short. I, I think, you know, for me, one of the areas, and you highlighted what you've read, but, uh, you know, the stuff that I've read is really focused on what are the barriers to entry in healthcare? Uh, you know, on the clinical side, on the physician side, there was a health affairs uh, study that came out and, you know, everybody understands that there's underrepresentation in physician, you know, within physicians and underrepresented groups, particularly um, Native American, um, Latinx or Hispanic American uh, and black black physicians. And you look into the, the study and debt alone is a barrier because people are like, I can't, you know, I've come into pre-medicine with significant debt. I All I'm going to do is add on to that. And, and so knowing that debt is a significant component, and I think that that's something that has been clearly identified not only with physicians, but also looking at what's going on with the nursing workforce. Um, and so I, I think I think in order for us to be able to care for our communities and to be able to do things, we're going to have to get creative in, in thinking. I know lots of people uh, have various feelings about um, uh, foreign trained nurses as well as foreign trained physicians, but the simple fact of the matter is we need everybody to be able to do this. And I think, you know, understanding that uh, we can, uh, that bringing people to this country to be able to help support our care and helping them to educate folks is a, is a component. I think thinking creatively about how we get more uh, black, brown faces in terms of, of entering ST, uh, STEM, you know, science, technology, uh, and health specific um, educational background. So that way people have a less of, a, you know, significant comfort and then really focusing on scholarships and other really creative thinking in terms of how people to get people involved. Because the simple fact of the matter is we've got to find ways to get people less concerned about the barriers to entry and recognize that we've got to increase that workforce to be able to simply care for the patient. I mean, that's just to get to where we are today. Mm -hmm. You know, only, you know, we're, we've got a, a, a ton of work to go to be able to, to address the workforce in the future. So big question. I wish I had a, a, probably a more, co more coherent thought about that, but the, the simple fact of the matter is I think we've got to figure out barriers to entry. Yeah, and I mean, by, by, by 2032, it's estimated that 16% uh, of all RNs openings won't be filled. And uh, by 2032, and this information is in the Texas Controller website, by the way, uh, the demand for LVN is going to increase probably by more than 30%, but the output's only going to increase by about 16%. 
uh, you you nail it. What what do you do? How do you eliminate these barriers of entries so we can fulfill the, the shortfall of labor to fulfill healthcare demands? Here in Texas alone, there's 9.25 nurses for every thousand residents. Um, how do you keep up with that? It's just simply not enough. And uh, hopefully diversity initiatives can help with that. I want to congratulate you in this podcast. I think it's helping put the word out. Uh, only like this, I think we're going to be uh, putting the word out there and hopefully coming up with initiatives that will help fulfill the gap. I, I, I appreciate your kind words. I think it, it is about making sure that more people are aware of this because you said that 9.125 per thousand and I, I don't want to say I was having chest pain, but I did become short of breath for a second because I was there going. I remember Texas being highlighted, and this isn't all about Texas, but you know, a huge state with a huge influx of people. And I think, you know, that from a physician capacity issue, we're like 41st, 42nd in the nation with respect to physicians per capita. And I can only imagine what that number is for nursing based off of what you just shared. So I don't even know what the national average is. That's something we should look up. Jay, yeah. you look like you have a question. Yeah, I, you, I, you have this like this. I can see the wheels turning. <laughs> I, I have a couple questions, um, but I guess the first one, kind of throwing to, to both of you um, as you know, leaders in healthcare, kind of wondering, you know, thinking of this audience, ideally we'd have anyone from maybe healthcare students or someone like my or med students and whatnot, and also people like myself that are more operations side. Like, what would be your your advice to them to kind of think about this you know i think you guys are are pointing a huge issue um and obviously leaders play a, a big role in changing that but for the average person like what what role do they play in in being able to bring a little more diversity to, to these positions and creating more opportunities go for it jose you're the guest and i have to do <laughs> guest first um, I mean, uh, like Greg said, uh, eliminating those barriers, but what does that mean? Uh, it could be through legislation, you know, as a citizen, whether you're from operations or any background, I mean, writing, contacting your constituents, legislation, uh, looking at reimbursement models. Years ago, there were uh, barriers removed to make it easier for nurses from other countries to come and serve here, for example. Uh, there's over 4 million nurses in the United States. Texas alone has a little over 400,000. Uh, California and Texas has the most of that. 40% of those nurses in Texas go to work for hospitals. Uh, so that would be one way to attack it. I don't know, Greg, what do you think? When legislation's an absolute must, I think we you have to recognize that legislators work on based on their constituency and what the constituency states is a priority. And Jose made the point from a business perspective, it's it's got to be a business priority, but it does have to become a legislative priority and understanding that this is ultimately going to be the betterment of our overall community. Uh, it's, you know, DEI isn't DEI for its own sake, but it is for the betterment of our communities and in particular, the betterment of our communities in healthcare. So I would start there in terms of identifying, you know, spending time. Do you know the statistics of nurses? It, it's an excellent background within your, within your particular uh, community. Are there opportunities for you to, you know, do small sponsorship for uh, there are plenty of of scholarship programs. I'll, I'll 
prevent myself from naming uh, the ones that I'm directly associated with, but there are plenty of scholarship programs out there that are focused very much on increasing uh, the the pool of um, underrepresented and historically disenfranchised groups in healthcare. And so I think really being intentional about finding out what resources are available simply to you know be able to support them uh, candidly finding opportunities to focus on the local uh, healthcare institutions that all of us quite honestly know we need and so you know you have nurses how <laughs> what can we do to support you know them coming here because you know even people uh, you know participating in recruitment efforts it's a big deal it's right. a huge deal. I mean, yeah. if, if you can reduce attrition by X percentage in your own, you know, clinical setting, what does that mean in terms of uh, healthcare patients that you will get to see because you have the proper staff? I mean, that's a direct link to the bottom line right there. That's a direct link to the health of the community right there. And guess what? The sooner you get ahead of it, the healthier they can be, which in theory should cost you less. So you want to get ahead of this before it gets worse, and you can achieve that through diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Thanks so much for the answer. I guess one other question, and this is kind of changing gears, um, but I also wondered was, you know, as a leader of your organization, CEO, you're able to kind of um, set the tone and the mission and the vision, but I am kind of curious, you know, I've, people I've talked to, some people are really behind DEI and some are cynical. Um, I'm just wondering, how do you really shape the culture, um, not just having a, a mission statement, but really kind of shaping the, the hearts and minds of the people in your organization? Uh, I don't know if it's, whether it's the challenges or how you do it, just anything um, to kind of understand that better. I'd love to hear your insights. You know, uh, as simple as it may sound, just talking about it and uh, creating an environment where people are comfortable to talk about it. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion has this um, enigma around it, like it's this mystical thing, and it's simply having the right folks in the right seats that you can provide better delivery of care as possible. And um, you can apply that to many things, but in healthcare, again, we're caring for humans by humans, it does make a difference. I'll give you an example. Um, we have a chaplain as part of our interdepartmental uh, disciplinary team, um, and uh, one of the things that we instituted recently, once a month, the chaplain uh, does uh, cultural sensitivity training. Um, you may not know this, and sometimes nurses may not be top of mind, but one of the things that we have emphasized that uh, at the time that a patient unfortunately does expire, uh, what are the rituals uh, for or the process for a Muslim culture versus a Christian culture? Those things impact diversity and have to be followed. Uh, so those are some of the ways that we have tried to operationalize some of those things. And it sounds like you keep it longitudinal. So it's not the, oh, we did sensitivity training check we're good for the next 15 years it's uh it's important to it's interesting that you, you know who you have layering that in and making sure that it's a part of your interdisciplinary rounds I, I think that's a particularly cool idea because then it becomes it really is baked in as a part of the work that you're doing every day and it's no longer this sidebar initiative that's moving forward absolutely yes yeah 
Jose, I may be asking you a question that you uh, don't have. I'm sorry, Jay. Did you have an additional question that you wanted to ask? No, I think, you know, thanks, Jose. You answered both my questions. So, can't be rude and just cut Jay. Jay gets really involved in these questions, and uh, I, he's it's great to have him here and, and ask all of them. I, I, so I may be asking you a question that's out of school, but I'm I'm always interested. Health equity is is obviously a, a huge uh, hot topic right now and, and has been for some time. Are there areas of health equity, particularly in the palliative care and hospice, even home health space, that you're aware of that you would like to provide some visibility for uh, us and our guests? You know, I, I think uh, perhaps sharing with uh, your your public that um, hospice as a service specifically, there are only 52% of beneficiaries use it because it has this uh, stigma. Uh, President Carter recently went to hospice and uh, for, from what we understand, still under care services. And uh, the irony of the service is if you get in hospice, which is about making your last days of life as comfortable as possible, if you do it too late, you do pass away, which fits that stigma that hospice, you know, kills patients. And it's not the case. Uh, is actually the complete opposite. Sometimes folks wait too long to get in hospice. So it is a benefit that's covered and uh, hopefully through some education, which is a lot of the, you know, the initiatives that we focus on, uh, we can make a difference in the community. And with an aging population, I think the future of hospice is an area that will take uh, more and more, um, you know, priorities. No, I love the fact that you highlighted the unfortunate statistic that so few people access hospice. Uh, I know that I was reading another paper and again, noting healthcare disparities and understanding that again, um, black and Hispanic patients tend to access it even less than the 52% that you mentioned. Um, any thoughts there with respect to that and educational initiatives that JOL or or you personally believe, you know, needs to be out there? Um, I think just getting more involved in the community, it's just going to take time. Um, and perhaps one, one uh, way that we have found successful is say your loved one may be ready for a higher level of care. And well, tell me more. What, what's that about? Well, you know, there's an interdisciplinary team that would care for your loved one. And, and then, you know, they understand what it is. And by the way, it is, it is covered if, if you have Medicare. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that those dollars, uh, Medicare dollars, obviously are used uh, wisely. Um, but sometimes there's a lot of concern. Who pays for this? Oh, wow. It includes that. Well, tell me more about that. Uh, so sometimes it's just going to be a lot of education, and you're absolutely right. Um, the 52% is just an average, depending on what community, what demographic you're, you're zooming in. There's certainly going to be uh, disparities. So uh, a lot of work ahead, a lot of education, for sure. Yeah. Well, well, one I, question. I, go for it, Jay. Oh, I'm sorry. W one question tied to that. I'm wondering, you know, beyond just uh, the education of being aware of what hospice is, um, do you feel like there's a lot of like cultural issues sometimes? I'm thinking, you know, being Korean from the Asian community, yeah, you know, I mm -hmm. I haven't seen a lot of um, my friends' grandparents are going to hospice, and I couldn't really tell you the exact reasons, but I definitely know within like my background culture, hospice doesn't seem to be. There are some some reasons that that's a little bit that's not an option that typically um, 
people go to. I don't know if you've seen that in other communities of, of that kind of cultural issues or, or other parts of type of education that you need to, to do to help overcome some of those things. You know, it's it's such a sensitive topic, not only uh, culturally, but uh, also within the family becomes a very difficult topic for family members to talk about. Uh, I'm going to go a little personal here. My my own mother-in-law has brain cancer and uh, my wife and her sister and, and dad don't necessarily agree on the best philosophy to, to treat the whole situation. Uh, their background is from Romania. Um, I am from Dominican Republic, and, you know, I can tell you being a Hispanic background, you know, it's hard for us Hispanic to talk about abuelita going to a VIP facility or an assisted living facility to take hospice services uh, because we simply don't have the resources to care for abuelita at home. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Jay. It's, it's difficult, but but it's the reality. And guess what? At the end of the day, your loved one is in such more better hands if we would simply uh, embrace the resources that we're so fortunate to have here. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for sharing that uh, about your 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 individual family member. I I too have personal experience with hospice. My my father passed. Uh, in hospice, but we were incredibly grateful for the fact that we were able to have him at home. Uh, but I too think of that the challenges like we're not for the fact that we're involved in healthcare can explain what the services are, fundamentally get to across to family members who are less familiar. Nobody's trying to to make the to accelerate the process. We're, what we're trying to do is ensure the dignity uh, of the life that that they've lived. And I think if we can do a better job collectively, not only as physicians and as individuals who run the hospices, but uh, but as a collective healthcare group to make sure that people understand that the hospice is here to really reinforce what I think all of us culturally hold dear, which is that we want our loved ones to have the best care possible, particularly when they're at, you know at those moments where traditional medicine isn't going to going to be able to help them any longer. And, and you mentioned a, a very key word, which is dignity. That's one of those universal things, regardless of background. You want to make sure your loved ones in their last days uh, are as comfortable as possible, you know, with as much dignity as possible in those difficult times. And one of the good things about hospice is that um, I don't know the exact percentage, but I want to say it's about 80 percent of it is actually provided in the home setting. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, hospice, does that mean they have to go to a facility? Well, that is not always the case. Uh, so you do get to keep Abuelita at home if, if you're fortunate to be in that situation. We absolutely have to take care of Abuelita. Uh, well, fantastic. Well, Jose, I don't have any additional questions for you because you've done such a remarkable job of a quoting statistics that now I'm going to go back and dig in a lot more for my own community and quite honestly for where our, our hospitals are because you I was aware of the nursing shortages but man you really put a, a fine finer point on that for me. Uh, I think uh, you do seem to have encyclopedic knowledge of some of these numbers, which speaks to your skills <laughs> uh, as, as a healthcare executive. Um, but I also think that it, it, you've done a, a 
remarkable job of highlighting um, where hospice fits in all of this and our opportunities to highlight it to all of our patients, but particularly um, those from uh, communities that aren't, uh, I say, a traditional. I'm not sure what traditional is, but uh, understanding that everybody's got a, a variety of different perspectives that we can share. Is there anything else that we can answer for you? Uh, number one, and then number two, even though you said it at the beginning, I'm going to have you say it again, which is who do you who would you want to hear on here and can you help us get them on? <laughs> um, perhaps uh, the CEO of Lone Star Circle of Care, uh, John Calvin, would be a great uh, person to get his take on many of these interesting topics. Uh, I think he'd be somebody that uh, the public and your podcast would uh, like to hear from. Um, and yeah, that, that's what, who I would recommend. Sounds terrific. All right, Jay, anything else that you want to add? No, I think this is great. Um, I'm going to stop the recording here. We'll, we'll cut out probably. Let me, let me just, let me just kind of say one quote and feel free to edit this out. I'm, I'm not much into politics, but it just seems that diversity these days is, is not necessarily healthcare only. Okay. Seems to be, you know, getting politicized from the governor of Florida, perhaps uh, putting the brakes on certain advanced African American studies at a higher levels, or the governor of Arkansas, uh, you know, banning the word Latinx, or the governor of Texas uh, putting uh, directives to the agencies that uh, will hire only merit, not so much on on DEI. Uh, unfortunately, there's always going to be a good and a bad to all these initiatives, but at the end of the day. Um, you know, hopefully we, we put the human factor ahead of time, ahead of everything else, not politics. And in healthcare specific, again, we're providing human care for humans. And uh, I just wanted to put that out there. And hopefully we can uh, put the right efforts on our political constituents to change legislation to tackle the real problems, which are labor shortage and ultimately the diversity, which helps with, with that, you know, reduce attrition and some of those things. So everything is connected. And uh, thank you again, because your podcast is a venue to put that word out there. Well, I, I, we're absolutely going to make sure that that's included. And I will say it, my own support of what you stated, which is DEI. And again, we're not talking specifically about healthcare, but DEI isn't there to sustain itself as an initiative. It, to your point, and the reason why we're doing this podcast is we, and you highlighted it earlier, we have 60 years of data indicating that we have healthcare disparities. And when we know that a more diverse workforce helps to reduce with the goal of eliminating those disparities, this this is no longer a political issue. This is this, this are decisions that are made with science. And until we can uh, are willing to accept that and accept that we have a responsibility to care better for our fellow human beings and acknowledging their diversity, acknowledging that there are health disparities and they deserve equity and including them in those in part of that decision making. So that way we can create a healthcare system and an overall society that really does help us better care for other human beings uh, and help to eliminate those things. So uh, totally support your stating that. Uh, love the fact that you wanted to say it here, uh, and I'm more than happy to, to to state my own opinion associated with that as well. So, 
thank you so much, Jose. I really appreciate your being on here, the time for your candor, your bravery, and your expertise. Because man, you you were you were rocking it there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.